0: Let's pray and then we'll dive into our teaching. Dear God, uh, we come before you and we come before you with the words that your son Jesus said. These were some of his parting words when he was about to be crucified and then resurrected. He said to his disciples, praying to you, these are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So, Father, would you sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. God, what we need more than anything is your truth to have it transform our minds, our hearts, our wills, our desires, our actions. Would you do that? Would you meet us now in the reading and the teaching of your word? Would you sanctify us in your truth by your Holy Spirit? We pray this all in the name of Jesus, your Son, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, amen. Well, recently, a family in our church they visited Florida. They went to Orlando, Florida, and they went to Disney World on the dime of an organization called Give Kids the World. If you've heard of it, about this organization, it's very closely linked with Make a Wish. And one of the purposes that uh, give Kids the World has is that they just want to bless families that have a child or multiple children with terminal or chronic illness, and this family went down to Orlando because one of the things that Give Kids the World does is they give a free week long tickets to Disney World to go to the shows. You get the the fast pass, so you get to the front of the lines. You you get to experience everything Disney World has to offer. And as you go into this organization called Give Children the World, as you walk into their lobby, they have this wall. And on this wall, there are countless stars. And every star represents a person who had come down to Florida and experienced uh, Disney World. And on every star is the name of a child that has gone uh, to Give Kids the World. They say that if you have a star on that wall, you are welcomed back at any time. You can go back and you can look at that star and you can remember that week that you had with your family or your loved ones at Disney. And since 1986, that's when this organization started, they say that they have served more than 170,000 children and families. That's over 170,000 stars on that wall. And I was talking with this family, and they were talking about how special it was to go there with their daughter and put this star on the wall. It was such a special moment. They're taking pictures. And as they came back to Colorado, they were thinking in hindsight that they were one of the lucky ones. Because for some of those families, some of those stars represented children who wouldn't go back home, whose diagnosis was not just chronic, but it was fatal and terminal. And it was moments like that, when you think of that, it's moments like that that remind us our world, this world that we experience, it's not the way that it's supposed to be. Our world filled with terminal illness, chronic pain, disease, death, and worst of all, the death of a child, those are all evidence that this world, as we experience it now, it is not the way that it's supposed to be. And the Bible confirms that. It actually confirms that from the very opening pages of Scripture. You know, today when we want to emphasize something, when we're writing a letter to somebody, we're writing an email, we'll put something in italics, or we'll put it in bold, or we'll underline it. We'll put exclamation points at the end of our sentences. Sometimes you'll Use too many of those, which I've been accused of doing at time to time. When the Bible wants to do this, though, when the Bible wants to emphasize something, what they'll use, the authors will use repetition. It's the way of showing us pay attention to this point. And the first repetitions that you hear are actually in the opening pages of the Bible when, when God creates everything that is. We see that God, the first thing that he ever created was light And when God created light, he then looks at the light that he made, and he said, this light was good. It was good. Then later on, day three in creation, Genesis chapter 1, verse 10, God separates the earth and the sea, and then he does it again. He sees what he has created, and he says, it was good. Genesis chapter 1, verse 12, God then brings forth vegetation and plants and trees from the earth that he's created and again God saw that it was good and this is repeated again and again and again until day six when God looks at everything that he's created and behold he says it again it was very good and that's a great story God creates everything a life of flourishing but the story doesn't end there this is Genesis 1. That's the way the world was. That's the way that the world was supposed to be. But then we're introduced with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. And Adam and Eve are these pinnacle of God's creation. And after they fall into sin by eating from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, if you're familiar with the story, we are met with another repetition. And this time, the repetition Isn't it was good, it was good, it was good. Instead, we see a repetition from the genealogy of Adam. This is Genesis 5, verse 5. Thus all the days of Adam that he lived were 930 years, and he died. Thus all the days of Seth, the child, were 912 years, and he died. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Thus all the days of, nobody knows how to pronounce that word, were 895 years, and he died. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. On and on and on it goes. The Bible is confirming this point. What started out as a pristine, good creation, meant for life and flourishing, created by a good God, intended for life and blessing, is now plagued by death. I use that term plague very intentionally, by the way, because that's what a plague does. A plague starts out in germ form. And in germ form, all of a sudden it spreads and With this spread, it defiles everything that it becomes, it comes in contact with. So death, because of Adam and Eve, now spreads and defiles and pollutes and taints everything in God's good creation. Death is the primary evidence that we have that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. Death is evidence that our world is plagued. That's why one author put it this way. He said, quote, death is the most implacable and inexorable enemy of the human race. And as you look at our text this morning, this is Mark chapter 5, out of Genesis back to Mark chapter 5. In our text this morning, Jesus confronts death head on. He confronts death, the enemy of the human race, squarely. Mark chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus, we see, has crossed again on the boat to the other side. Remember last week, Jesus had crossed the Sea of Galilee. He had crossed the Sea of Galilee to the area known as the Land of the Gerasenes. There he cast out a legion of demons, over 5,200 demons from one man, showing his power over darkness, his power over evil. And as usual, as Jesus returns back to this side of the Sea of Galilee, the eastern side or the western side of the Sea of Galilee, As usual, we read that a great crowd gathered about him beside the sea. This is very common with Jesus. Everybody knew who Jesus was. They saw his miracles, heard his teaching. They wanted to be around him. But then something unusual happens in verse 22. A ruler of the synagogue, we read, his name's Jairus, He recognizes Jesus from afar, he sees Jesus from afar, and in desperation you see he pushes his way through this crowd of hundreds, possibly thousands of people, and he forces his way through this crowd in a frenzy and we read, quote, he fell down at the feet of Jesus and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her. So that she may be made well and live. She's at the point of death. In Greek, it's eschatos eke. It's this expression that means she's at death's door. She's at her final moment. She's breathing her last. She's as good as dead. The plague of death introduced by Adam and Eve is now face to face with Jesus as he returns to this side of the Sea of Galilee. And here's what we're going to see this morning. This is just the beginning of the story. What Mark often does throughout his gospel is he uses this sandwich technique. So it starts out with this story of Jairus, but sandwiched in between the story of Jairus is going to be another story, the story of a woman who has a hemorrhage. She's been hemorrhaging for 12 years, we're going to read. And what this does, this sandwich technique of placing something in between the story of Jairus, is it's supposed to be kind of like a cliffhanger. It's supposed to help us anticipate what's to come next with the story of Jairus. So before Jesus confronts the plague of death, he starts here first with another plague, the plague of disease. So that's our first point this morning, that Jesus comes to confront disease. And the story picks up, verse 24, this crowd is thronging around Jesus, we read, they're pressing in around him, they're eager to hear Jesus teaching or see if he's going to perform a miracle. So he's surrounded by countless people. But then in verse 25, that's when we're first introduced to this woman who has this hemorrhage. Or the text calls it a discharge of blood for 12 years. You see that. And you see how dire her situation is when you look at verse 26, the next verse. It says how much she suffered and how dire this is. Verse 26 reads, She had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better But rather grew worse. We know people like this, don't we? People who day in, day out, day after day after day, they wake up with the same illness, the same disease, the same malady they went to bed with the night before. That is the same malady that they wake up with the next morning. And no medical treatment, no matter how much they seek, no matter how much they spend, seems to get them absolutely nowhere. I'm reminded of Hannah's grandpa. Hannah's my wife and uh, her grandpa. We called him Grampy John. During the last several years of his life, he was plagued with dizzy spells. And then on top of his dizzy spells, that was compounded by kind of recurring pneumonia and then compounded on top of his dizzy spells and pneumonia. For the last four years of his life, it was compounded by shingles. And if you're not familiar with shingles, shingles is this stripe-like rash. It develops on your side usually on uh, the right side of your body, on your torso, and it, it triggers the nervous system, so it's excruciatingly painful on the surface, but this rash can also turn into blisters and then scab over and then blister again, and it's agonizingly painful. Well, these doctors tried to do something to treat these shingles, but nothing really worked. The shingles became recurrent and they became the norm for him. The same malady he went to bed with every single night, he would wake up the first thing in the next morning and he would feel that pain, that agony day after day after day. It's interesting, Hannah actually had shingles when she was in high school. And she thinks back to that and she thinks even today, thinking back to that, she says, that's the worst pain that I've ever been in. Keep in mind, this is a woman who has had four children, okay? In fact, when you think back at one of the chi- uh, childbirths that we had, uh, our second daughter, McLean, this is really funny. We arrived at the hospital when uh, Hannah was giving birth to McLean, and right as we arrived there, we check in, we're sitting down, and Hannah's in a lot of pain, more so than she had been when we were uh, giving birth to our first child, Eli. I say we, uh, her. Um <laughs> We're sitting, in, we're sitting in the waiting room and I'm, I'm looking at my watch and thinking, man, these contractions are really close together, like 30 to 40 seconds. And Hannah is, you know, agonizingly in pain. She's got her eyes closed and she's just saying, I can't wait for the epidural. I can't wait for the epidural. I can't wait for the epidural. And two thoughts are running through my head. I'm thinking when Eli was born, when these contractions were about 30 to 40 seconds apart, that was usually time to push. So the thoughts going along in my head, I think you're beyond the time where you can get the epidural. But the second thought that's going through my head is, I'm not going to be the one to tell you that, right? (laughs) If anyone's going to deliver this bad news, it's not going to be me. I know you're already mad at me for putting you in this situation. So I'm not going to be the one to tell you you can't have the drugs. That's why doctors get paid the big bucks, right? My thinking was right, by the way. We got to the delivery room. It's time to push. I have never heard a scream so deafening as Hannah gave when she gave birth to McLean naturally. In fact, it was so loud that nurses from the other room came in and they said, all the other patients said, that's why I'm getting the drugs. <laughs> <laughs> and as Hannah looks back, I say that all for a point, I promise. I promise. As Hannah looks back, she says shingles were the most agonizing pain that she's ever been in. Hannah had shingles for two weeks. Grampy John had shingles for four years. And here is this woman suffering, hemorrhaging in agony for 12 years, day after day after day spending all that she had, seeking medical opinions, talking to experts, but nothing she did make a, made a difference, but rather she grew worse. That's how dire this woman's situation is. And as we read this account, you know, our hearts go out to this woman because we know people like this who have suffered like this woman, but that's not exactly how Jesus' contemporaries would have experienced this woman. In fact, we talked about this last week, remember? Remember? The Old Testament in Jewish culture and Jewish religion, they they made this distinction of these various ceremonial laws, ceremonial laws that made the distinction between those who were clean and those who were unclean. If you were clean, you could be part of the people of God, part of the family of God. You could worship in God's presence. But if you were unclean, then it meant you couldn't worship. It meant. You had to be made clean and purified before you could be received back into the family of God. Now, to be sure, some ceremonial uncleanness, it was completely unavoidable. You would just become ceremonially unclean by certain things that you did at at every point in your life. And what you would do is you'd purify yourself then you'd be welcomed back in. But for some people, your uncleanness was chronic. There were people like lepers or people who had various skin diseases. That couldn't be cured. There was no cure for that. So therefore, you were chronically, perpetually unclean. There were some people who had physical deformities or disabilities. They too would have had no avenue for purification. They were permanently unclean, permanently outside the family of God. And this woman falls into that latter category. Because if you look at Leviticus chapter 15, verses 25 through 27... It stipulates there that if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness, as in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean and shall wash their clothes and bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. So for 12 years, this woman has been ceremonially unclean, Leviticus 15, 25. And to make matters worse, because of her condition, everyone she comes into contact with, touches or anything she touches, and then people touch that, they become unclean as a consequence as well. That's Leviticus 15, verse 27. So not only is she plagued with chronic illness and suffering physically. She's also plagued with chronic uncleanness spiritually, and she knows it. She knows it. You can see that in the way that she approaches Jesus. And back to Mark, Mark chapter 5, verse 27, she had heard the reports about Jesus and we're told that she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. See, she doesn't want to make anyone else unclean or bring attention to herself. So she just wants to sneak up without touching anybody, without being conspicuous. She just wants to touch his garment. We read because, verse 28, she thinks, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. I don't even need to interact with Jesus necessarily, right? And I, don't, I definitely don't want to have to touch him and make him unclean. So therefore, I'm just going to touch his garment, go on my way. And she's right. She's right. She experiences immediate and total healing just by touching Jesus' garment. Verse 29, we read, Immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. One touch of the garment of Jesus and this woman who has been suffering for 12 years in agony, both spiritually and physically, is healed of her disease. Now, if you'll allow me to get on a soapbox here. I didn't bring my soapbox. But the figurative soapbox, okay? This is a miracle. A miracle. There are various Christians today who call themselves or fancy themselves faith healers. They claim to have this same power of Jesus or the early apostles to miraculously heal. I actually watched a service of some of these uh, healing services recently. There was one faith healer who gathered before thousands of people said, you know, God is telling me somebody in this room right now has chronic back pain that has never been able to be, be healed or helped. And one lady raises her hand, he invites her up. She comes up and he says, tell me about your back pain. How bad has it been? On a scale of 1 to 10, what is your pain right now? And she said, it's a level 8, it's agonizing, I can hardly stand So he does his thing, he prays, he lays his hands on her, he says she's been healed, and he asks her, okay, what is your pain level now? Have you been healed? She says, yes, I have. It's now at a level four. Friends, that is not healing according to the New Testament. It's not. In every New Testament healing, in every instance, and I say every intentionally, the healing that God offers is instantaneous It is total and it is indisputable. There are no New Testament healings of Jesus or anyone else for that matter that is partial, fragmented, or gradual. There's no restitution of a person who is blind saying, oh, you know what? I'm better. I'm 60% blind now. That doesn't happen in the New Testament. It is not a New Testament healing. Those are forgeries. And Jesus here gives the real thing. Now, I want to be clear. I am not saying, do not hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying God cannot do miracles today. God absolutely does miracles today. He absolutely can, and he absolutely does. But be very cautious when someone says they can heal with the power of Jesus, and their healing looks nothing like the healing of Jesus. Thank you for indulging my soapbox. (laughs) Back to the climax of the story, verse 30. You look in verse 30, Jesus Looking at this woman who has just touched him, she's been healed. Jesus, we're told, perceiving in himself, perceiving in himself that the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, Jesus, you you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Everybody's touching you. But Jesus looked around to see who had done it. Now, to be sure, you have to be clear about this, Jesus knows who touched him. Remember who Jesus is. The gospel of Mark has said this repeatedly. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the one who controls the sea and the wind, the one who commands nature and nature obeys. Jesus is the one who casts out a legion of demons as the most high God. Jesus is God. He knows who touched him. But this is common in the Bible where someone will ask a question not to get information but in order to summon someone into their presence. You actually again see this in the opening chapters of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3 verses 8 and 9. You remember what happened there, Adam and Eve, they eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and They've severed their relationship with God. They know it. They know they've severed this relationship with God as their father. They realize their pollution and their defilement and sin and their uncleanness. They realize now that they brought a plague of death and shame into the world. So what do they do? Genesis chapter 3 verse 8. They hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? And these are both examples, Adam and Eve, this woman who had the hemorrhage. These are both examples of God asking a question, not to get information, but to summon them into his presence. God knows where they're at. Jesus knows where they're at. It's like when you play hide and seek with kids, right? They think they're being all discreet. You're counting to 20. You know they just went into the cabinet because they sound like a Clydesdale going into the cabinet, right? And you go around and and you say, where are you? Where are you? And if your kids are three years old, like some of my daughters, they say, I'm in here, you know, (laughs) because they don't exactly get the game. But that's what's going on. Adam and Eve... This woman, God is saying, where are you? Where are you? Who touched me? And you see in this woman, she knows what she's done. I am this unclean woman who has just touched this clean rabbi, this miracle worker in her eyes. And verse 33, because of that, she expects, like Adam and Eve, to be rebuked by God. Verse 33, but the woman knowing what had happened to her naturally, she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Strictly speaking, this woman could face serious punishment. I mean, this woman has just defiled this whole crowd. This woman who's unclean by this constant bleeding, whatever, whoever she touches becomes unclean. She shouldn't have been there. And so she's rightfully fearful coming into the presence of Jesus, expecting his rebuke. But Jesus says something to her that only Jesus can say. Verse 34, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Wow. See, any other person, any miracle worker, talk about John the Baptist, talk about any great prophet of the Old Testament, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, doesn't matter how great you are, any other person would be touched by this woman, they would become ceremonially unclean. They would be touched and they would be subject to illness. They would be touched and they would have been defiled like a plague. The pollution of this woman would have transferred and spread to them and desecrated them. But with Jesus, the plague of disease and ceremonially unclean defilement is put in reverse. It starts to work backwards. It starts to work the other way around. Only Jesus can say this. (laughs) When Jesus is touched by this woman, she becomes clean. When Jesus is touched, she's made well. When Jesus is touched, she is made pure. Only Jesus can say, Daughter, your faith in me has made you well. Go in peace. In our world, as we experience it now, being not the way that it's supposed to be, the plague of sin, disease, and pollution has touched everyone and everything. But when Jesus comes, the plague works backward. You see that here up close, but you see it time and time again throughout Mark. And if you follow Jesus, you see it time and time again throughout your life personally. When Jesus encounters the sick, he is not made sick. Instead, Jesus' life and wellness makes them well. When Jesus encounters the defiled, he by his purity makes them pure. When Jesus encounters your sin, His righteousness makes you righteous. When Jesus encounters your unholiness, his purity makes you holy and pure by faith. When Jesus encounters you at your most unlovable, his love set upon you makes you lovable. Everything works backward, the plague is put in reverse. It's interesting, you hear stories of Jesus' miracles and people will say, I can't believe that, that sounds too miraculous. Jesus doing things that goes against the laws of nature, he's doing things that go against the natural order, but friends, that's not what Jesus is doing. You realize Jesus is not doing anything against the natural order. Jesus is not working outside of the laws of nature. No, he's actually putting nature back into its right order, back to God's good creation in Genesis 1, the pristine good creation of God. Jesus is actually putting nature back to God's proper intention to restore God's good creation, a creation of life and flourishing and blessing for human beings made in his image. That's the way that it's supposed to be. Any of you ever run in like a St. Jude half marathon or marathon? I love these because when you're running these these uh, marathons, they're displaying all the good work that St. Jude does. And as you begin the race, they have all of these banners with all of these children who have life-changing cancers that, that people think are incurable. And you're running and you're seeing their picture, age six, age nine, age 12, of these kids who have these incurable, or so we thought, cancers. But then as you finish the race, you see those pictures again. As you finish the race, you see those same children then at the end of the race, at age 25 or age 30 or age 18, cured of the illness that they thought was going to take their life. See, that's the way the world is supposed to be. The world is not supposed to be plagued. With death, and Jesus has come to confront the plague of disease and restore God's natural order. So that's Jesus confronting disease. And remember, this is a sandwich, right? Jesus is confronting disease in order to give us a cliffhanger or an anticipation of what's to come in the story of Jairus. So Jesus now confronts death after we see this story. As Jesus is being thronged about by every side, healing this woman. Someone comes now from Jairus' house and he delivers the devastating news. Verse 35, we read that he came and said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Many of us, again, we've heard that same thing. You've heard that same thing in your life. I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. Or, We've done everything we can. I'm sorry, he didn't pull through. I'm sorry, she's not going to make it. But then verse 36, Jesus again says something that only he can say. Verse 36, overhearing what they had said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, Jairus, only believe. You realize, Jairus, if, if this world as we experience it now is all that there is, then you have every reason to be afraid. You have every reason to despair. After all, if this world is all that there is, then death is not unnatural or abnormal. It's actually completely natural, completely normal, and to be expected. But Jesus says, do not fear, Jairus, only believe. Richard Dawkins, who's an atheist, he's also a biologist, he's a thinker, he wrote in his book, The God Delusion, Quote, if a universe of merely electrons and genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, and you won't find any rhyme or reason for it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference indifference see if the world is the way that it is and there is nothing more than death is normal Jairus you have every reason to fear you have every reason to despair and there is no hope beyond the death of your daughter death has the final word but again Jesus says something that only he can see Jairus do not fear only believe you just saw what I did with this woman with a hemorrhage You just saw what I did. I've come to reverse and to restore Jairus. Do not fear, only believe. Did you know that this is the most common command in the Bible? Do not fear before you shall have no other gods, before you shall not murder, before you shall not steal, even before honor your father and mother. I have four kids. That's my favorite command. Before all those commands is this command right here. Do not fear. 365 times from the lips of God, from God's word, one for every day. Do not fear. After all, if Jesus is more powerful than nature, which we saw several weeks ago when Chad told us how Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves and they responded if Jesus can subdue the malicious forces of evil in a legion of demons, if Jesus can reverse disease, as we saw with this woman, if Jesus can do that, if that's the case, what is there to fear? There is no force of nature. There is no disease. There is no illness. There is no cancer. There is no depression. There is no sin or power of evil that Jesus cannot reverse and restore Do not fear, only believe. 365 times for us to remember. So Jesus goes with Jairus. He goes with Jairus and we see in verse 37 and 38, if you you have your Bible open, Jesus allows no one but Peter, James and John to go with him. They come to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus sees this commotion going on outside. People are weeping, they're wailing, they're lamenting over the loss of this girl. And verse 39, when Jesus entered, he said to them, "'Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping.'" And now commentators point this out very helpfully. This is not Jesus making a medical diagnosis. He's not saying that she is not really dead. She's actually sleeping. Instead, what he's saying is death is not permanent. Just as a person wakes from their sleep, this girl too will rise when I see her. There's no reason to weep and lament because if a person has faith in Jesus, faith in God, Almighty, then death does not have the final word. And the crowd's, crowd's response is very telling. You see it in verse 40. As they hear this, they laughed at him. They laughed at him. You see, they hear Jesus, he comes and says, Hey, death isn't the final word. This girl will rise again. And they're thinking in their mind, Who is this guy, Jairus? This is the guy you bring here? This guy? Face the hard facts, Jairus, your daughter's dead. Don't you know the world is one of pitiless indifference? Have you not read The God Delusion? All the resurrection stuff the Bible talks about. The world has been going on for thousands of years, Jairus, and the dead are still in their grave. The world is still spinning. Nobody comes back from the dead. Why'd you bring this guy here? And they laugh at him. They mock him to his face. I was, uh, when I was first uh, becoming a Christian, I was studying Christianity and I was looking online and I came across these open courses from the University of Yale and one was like introduction to the New Testament or a New Testament survey. And in some of the very opening lectures, uh, one of the professors was asking his students, it was a really large class, a survey at Yale obviously, um, and he was asking his students in the class who here believed that Jesus was a real person. And about 90 or 100 students raised their hand. I'd say it was about Three quarters of the people who were gathered there. Then he says, okay, put your hands down. Who believes that Jesus was God who became a person? And at that, only about nine or ten students raised their hand. Very small fraction of the students. And then he said, how many of you believe that the Bible is actually historically accurate? At that, only one or two students raised their hand. And then finally he asked, how many of you believe... In the historical claim that Jesus really was resurrected from the dead miraculously. And at that, nobody raised their hand. And so the professor, he said, come on, there, there has to be some of you here. Ten of you rose your hand when you said that you thought Jesus was the son of God. Two of you raised your hand when you said that you believe the Bible is historically accurate. Come on, who believes Jesus rose from the dead here? And then three students bashfully raise their hand and you could hear, even though it was over the internet, right, as I'm watching this from the back of the, of the lecture hall, you could hear just audible chuckles go on among the students. As if to say, you really believe that stuff? All that resurrection stuff, don't you know that's just a metaphor that Jesus, you know, kind of lives in your heart and he can bring you from a place of darkness metaphorically back to a cheery disposition. God can't really bring people back from the dead. But here's what you have to see. Those students are in very good company. Those three students that raise their hand are in the company of the hemorrhaging woman and of Jairus, both of whom have faith in Jesus, to reverse the plague of disease and the plague of death. In each instance, Jesus does not restore metaphorically or poetically, but literally reverses the plague of disease and death by faith in him. Verse 40. After they laughed at him, Jesus put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. I've tried this before. By the way, you know, Talitha, kumi, that's a diminutive, Talitha is diminutive, it's like, it's like saying, sweetheart, honey wake up. I've tried this with my kids. You go into their room. You grab Lainey's hand. I say, "Laney, sweetheart, it's time to wake up. And I think Mark skips over something because when I do it, she usually looks up and says, I'm still tired. <laughs> so I think Mark skipped that part because this girl just wakes up and she begins walking. But Jesus might have more power than I do. <laughs> in both of these instances, faith in Jesus Through faith in him, faith in his power to reverse the plague of disease. And this woman is made well physically and spiritually. And now faith in Jesus' power to reverse death. And we see Jairus' daughter raised again from the dead. For those of us who have faith in Jesus today, the promise is still the same. The assurance is still the same today. If you receive Jesus by faith, he does something that only he can do. Through faith in him, you are made clean. You are made clean of your moral and spiritual defilement, the thing that you would never tell anybody else. By the purity and righteousness of Jesus and by the blood of Jesus on the cross, you are washed from all of your impurity by encountering and placing your faith in this holy and righteous God. Your separation from God, that alienation you feel from all of that sin, all of that pollution in your heart, Jesus says, Come to me, son and daughter of the living God. Your faith has made you well. Through faith in Jesus, his resurrection as well, his resurrection from the dead becomes your resurrection. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead to live eternally, you too will rise again to live eternally with God, your heavenly father, because death in Jesus does not have the final word. Do not fear, only believe. 365 times we need to hear that because if death is the enemy that we face, we need to hear it every day that through faith in Jesus, death does not have the final word. As I close, I'm gonna share a story that I, know, I think I've shared this with us before, but it's a story from a book written by Tim Keller called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It's the story of a girl named Tess. Tess was uh, recounting a crisis that she had in her faith and she said, this crisis happened in early adulthood. She was training to be a physician, and she says, as a physician, she, she saw a lot right. She would go on medical rotation, she would see a lot of terrible things. She said that she had seen you know people who Had been thrown from pickup trucks, fatal automobile accidents, 25 year olds being diagnosed with breast cancer. She had seen heart attacks on Christmas Day. She'd seen a lot. She'd treated a lot. But then she said it was in August 2012 that her husband and her welcomed their third baby boy into their family. And for three years, life was nearly perfect. But then she said, 14 weeks later, on a beautiful and mild November afternoon, I returned from work into the blissful chaos of our home just when our nanny was waking our newborn baby son from his nap. But from the other room, I heard her screams of terror. And it took several seconds to penetrate my consciousness. But as soon as I walked into the bedroom, I knew exactly what had happened. I knew that my son had died before I laid eyes on him. All my years of training combined with the incredible power of the Holy Spirit came over me in that moment. I called my husband. I told him, Wyatt has died and you need to come home immediately. I performed CPR on him while on speakerphone with 911, but I knew it was just a formality. She said when the medical examiner came to take the baby's body that her and her husband refused. They said, no, we're not allowing you to take her. We are going to fight. We are going to try and plead with God or at least fight with God to make something right here. And for one hour, she said that her and her husband, along with their nanny, prayed, God, resurrect Wyatt, resurrect our baby boy. We asked as forthrightly as we could to give us back our baby. But God heard our prayer and he said no. In the end, the cause of death was positional asphyxia, sudden infant death syndrome. He wasn't even sick. Hannah always gets angry at me because we'll be watching movies. And for whatever reason, every pastor is plagued with this. When you watch a movie, you always want to find the theological incorrectness in every story. <laughs> and I do have to point out, there is a theologically incorrect statement in Tessa's story. She said... We asked God, he heard our prayer, and he said, no. With theological precision, I want to tell you, and if Tess were here, I would tell her, God did not say no. He said, not yet. Not yet. God will not leave any child of his in the grave. For those who have faith in Jesus Christ, he has confronted death in their place, By his death and resurrection, he has put death in reverse. And friends, we have to hear this because it's the word that only Jesus can say. If you have faith in Jesus, then death is dead. Because in his resurrection, all children of God will rise again and live with Jesus eternally. In his new heavens and new earth, where there will be no disease, no death, no tears, no pain. Only Jesus can say that. Let's pray. Jesus, you are an almighty, all powerful, gracious, loving, holy God. We believe that you, Jesus Christ, are our Lord. You are the one who was crucified, who has died, who was buried, who descended into hell for our sins on the cross, who on the third day, you rose again from the dead. And Jesus, we believe you ascended into heaven. You are seated now at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and you will come again to judge the living and the dead. And at that day, your kingdom will have no end. And we, your children, by faith, adopted into your family, we will have eternal life with you. God, help us believe that more and more. Jesus, we thank you for your power. We thank you that even in death, we have this hope that neither life nor death nor sickness nor any scheme of hell or power of Satan can ever separate us from the love of Christ that we have. Jesus, we put our full confidence in that. And would you remind us to not fear, but only believe. We pray this all in your name. Amen.